Well, welcome again. Uh, my first and second year at Westmont, I was in the, the college choir, and I, as you know, I enjoy singing, but I, the, the director of the choir at that time and I just, we didn't really jive. I see, I didn't like the kind of music he picked out, and uh, he, he'd pick these songs that were, uh, the, the, the chords were dissonant, and they were intention, they kind of clashed, and, and I remember being in the choir, and we'd, he'd say, hold that note, and we'd all be singing this this dissonant thing, and he'd say, feel the dissonance. Isn't it beautiful? And I'm thinking, no, this is horrible. Like, just resolve the chord. I like melodic, sweet music. Some of you may feel like we've been in a season of church life in which there's been a lot of dissonance, tension, and you don't like it. And uh, I want to say I'm sorry for that as we've waded through these important issues. I'm not sorry for it. I'm just, it just is what it is. Uh, But as we begin the new year, we come back to some subjects, the sanctity of life and racial reconciliation next week, in which some of you may feel like more dissonance, more tension, these just hard topics that we we, uh, keep coming back to. And, And you might think, why? Why do we keep focusing on areas where there seems to be tension? And uh, I want to submit that if we believe in a God of compassion and justice, that we need to be able to think about and speak and lean into areas uh, that might be uncomfortable, might be places where we feel the tension, so to speak. I want to acknowledge as I begin this morning that I also know that whenever we speak about issues like this of sanctity of life, in particular how that affects the unborn, that this is a sensitive subject. In a room like this, there are undoubtedly many men and women for whom this is deeply personal. And I want you to know that we we don't talk about this to make anybody feel uncomfortable or less than or uh, guilty or shameful. Rather, uh, I want to remind you at the beginning of one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, and that is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, not you, I am the worst. That's a trustworthy saying, Paul says. And so we're going to approach it with that sense of humility. I need the grace of God as much as anybody else in this room. And it's good news that we come to celebrate every single Sunday. That that those who come to Christ looking for mercy never get turned away. We find in the person of Jesus that God is for us and not against us. So, as we turn our attention to uh, this week, to, again, the sanctity of life and particularly the unborn, it's been quite a year for that subject, has it not? Uh, After nearly 50 years of federalized legal abortion, Roe v. Wade was overturned just June 24th by a 6-3 decision of our Supreme Court called Dobbs v. Jackson's Women Health Organization. And that decision upheld the state of Mississippi's ban on abortions after 15 weeks and put any continuing uh, legislation in the hands of state government. That, react, that, that decision by our Supreme Court was met, you will remember, with two very extreme reactions. On the one hand, there were those who responded uh, with joy and celebration And on the other hand, those who uh, reacted with fear and anger 
Now, I think it's worth noting at the very beginning that, that laws are important, but morality cannot be legislated. A, 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 course, uh, a, a court case decision does not mean that the issue of abortion can be put to rest. If anything, uh, the recent decision last year has stirred up more passionate feelings, have produced a backlash of public opinion and more state legislation. But what we're going to do in the next few minutes is not keep talking about a legislative perspective on this, but we want to turn again to the, the pages of Scripture and get a biblical, a theological uh, perspective on life. And we're going to do this in kind of a unique way. I, I can't remember another Sunday that we've looked at the sanctity of life through this lens. We're going to open up the pages of the scriptures to the book of Revelation and see what it, it informs us about. Now, if you're the kind of person who reads through the Bible in a year, you may have just read the book of Revelation last year and, and were reminded this is confusing stuff. Maybe, why is this in the, the Bible? Well, um, <clears throat> go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to read just a few verses there. But before we read it, let me remind you uh, about what this interesting, sometimes confusing book is and what it is not. The book of Revelation, I would contend, is not a, a code book to be cracked to figure out the sequence of future historical events. Many people treat Revelation like that, attempting to connect uh, the different symbols and images in the book of Revelation with contemporary people and events and try to figure out where are we? Is Christ coming back soon? I think that's a mistaken way to read this book. Uh, I, I have uh, many commentaries on the Bible at home. One of my Commentary in my commentary said is three thick volumes on the book of Revelation. I'm not sure why I have it. I, I should give it away because I, ne- I never consult it. Uh, but one, one of the uh, things I found most helpful is a small little book uh, by a scholar named Richard Balcom. Uh, it's called The Theology of Revelation. And listen to how he describes this book. He says, John, the revelator, is, is taken up into heaven in order to see the world from the heavenly perspective. He's given a glimpse behind the scenes of history so that he can see what is really going on in the events of his time and place. He's also transported in vision into the final future of the world so that he can see the present, his present, from the perspective of what, is its, final, uh, what its final outcome must be. God's ultimate purpose for human history. I think he's right. So Revelation, again, what we're going to look at is a a, a different perspective pulled back that that gives us a a different angle on the the world that we live in right now. Uh, How many of you have visited Brazil before? I've been down to Brazil. Anybody? Um, In Brazil, uh, if you visit Rio de Janeiro in uh, particular, there's, there's a huge stone mountain, a monolith, that is 2,700, uh, 2,700 feet tall. 2,700? That's 2,700, right? My, my mind's a little fuzzy this morning. Anyway, you can hike up to the top of that mountain and basically look straight down on the city of Rio, Rio de Janeiro. And at the tip of that cliff, there's, there's a, that's uh, called a Pedra de Gavea. Um, there's a favorite little outcropping of rock that people go to take pictures. 
uh, daredevils go uh, to take their, their photos. And I'll, I'll just show you a couple pictures of where we are here. Okay, so here's this guy who's kind of wandered out on the ledge and got his photo opportunity. And I'm sure all of the moms are like, sit down at least. Well, this, this gal sat down, but I'm not sure that's much better. And then there's uh, this guy who, uh, yeah. But you know what, what happens if you change your perspective just a little bit, you realize these guys aren't actually that much of daredevils. You know, what seems really scary, uh, just from a different angle, a different perspective, you can get a truer vision of what's actually going on. Well, I want to contend that that's a little bit of what the book of Revelation is doing. These Christians are living within uh, the Roman Empire, and through these different symbols and images, Revelation gives a better, a truer perspective on the world that they, they live in. And it can do the same for us as well. This, this book that we're going to talk about just briefly, uh, uh, snippets of it anyway, uh, speaks about the nature of true authority, the power of evil, and how we as Christians are to live into such a world. So with all that in mind, would you stand to honor the reading of God's word? I'm just going to read four verses uh, from chapter 1, starting in verse 4 and ending in verse 8. It's the word of the Lord. Listen. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. So more than anything else, the book of Revelation is, is giving us a, a picture, a, a revelation of who God is. It, it's a theological book. It's a prophetic book to show us God. And as we just saw here in, in, in these short verses, there's a lot of descriptions and, and imagery that, that are designed to show us the character and nature of God. In verse 8, we, we find that he says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which, of course, are the first and the last Greek letters in that alphabet. It's like saying, I'm the A and the Z. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. And these nearly equivalent phrases come up uh, in significant places in the book. So in, in this verse, verse 1, 8, we, we hear God saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Nine verses later, we hear from Christ, I am the first and the last. And once we get to the end of the book, in chapter 21, God says again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And in the very last chapter, Christ says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now count it up, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, 
I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's not an accident that seven times we hear this ascription of, of God himself. He is the God of creation at the beginning and new creation at the end. And this is throughout this prophecy, this revelation, that that truth comes at us again and again. Not only that, in verse 1-8, again, we see God saying, He is the Lord God, the Almighty. This description of God, again, comes up seven times. This number that that represents symbolically the, the fullness, the perfection of something. And so when we read seven times that he is the Lord God Almighty, we're reminded that he is the one in full and complete control over all. We also see in these opening verses uh, a key uh, image, of a symbol in this entire letter, prophecy, is the throne. Uh, the throne of God. The throne of God, of course, denotes true authority. Now, this, this throne image gets developed uh, in chapter 4. If you'd go ahead and turn there with me. Again, we're just going to look at a few verses scattered throughout here. But we are in the throne room of God now. In verse 2 of that chapter, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That, that uh, title for God, the one who sits on the throne, guess how many times that comes up in the book of Revelation? Seven times. This is important to note that he is the God of all authority, the, the creator. Down at verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Skip down to the next paragraph. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Uh, And now down to verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. This is an amazing picture of of God at the center of worship. Notice it's no creature, it's no human that is at the center. Humanity has been radically displaced from the place that we like to put ourselves at the center. But God's true perspective on, on what's going on, God is at the center And the creatures are surrounding him, worshiping him, praising him because he is the God who created all things. And therefore, he has sovereign authority and power over all things. And I would contend that we need collectively a fresh vision of the centrality and authority of the creator God today. Our our country's declaration of independence 
you know, begins with the famous phrase that all men are created equal and have certain unalienable rights, including what? The right to life, right? And liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Now, think with me about that. Where do those rights come from? Where does the right to life and liberty come from? Does it come from our government, from the laws that are passed by our Supreme Court? Uh, the people who wrote the declaration say no. They, they come from somewhere else. They are endowed to us by our creator. That means that though the founders themselves did not live up to this vision often as our horrific history of slavery and oppression of women and people of other cultures, so forth, give testimony to. But when we, when we do acknowledge the, the, the work of God in creating every human life, each one who is knit together in their mother's womb, well, it, it changes everything. It doesn't matter whether that life is marked by Down syndrome or a physical birth defect or the infirmity that comes with age, or you can name other qualifications. The scriptures proclaim that based on the fact that we are made by God, each life has intrinsic value. I love how uh, Nancy Percy put it in, in her book, Love Thy Body. She says, a Christian concept of personhood depends not on what I can do, but on who I am, that I am created in the image of God and that God has called me into existence and continues to know and to love me. Human beings do not need to earn the right to be treated as creatures of great value. Our dignity is intrinsic, rooted in the fact that God made us, knows us, and loves us. That's profound, and it is Deeply good news. And I want to ask, do you know this morning, do you know that you are known and loved by God, not because of what you've done or haven't done, not based on your, your skills or background, but simply by the fact that you belong to God because he made you. He is your creator. His love is not rooted in anything else, but simply the fact that you belong to him. He made you. Now, this, this vision of the creator God is, is met by a, a different uh, vision in Revelation of what stands in opposition against God. In Revelation, the kingdom of God uh, is opposed by an unholy trinity that we meet in chapters 12 and 13. Will you flip over there? With me, I'm just going to read a few verses from those chapters. In chapter 12, <clears throat> we read about the dragon. And in 13, we're going to meet two beasts that go along with him. But listen to how tw chapter 12 starts out. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, a remarkable power. And on his heads, seven diadems, something of great glory. Now, who is this dragon? We find out in verse 9. We look down there. The great dragon was thrown down. 
that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. And what's going on here, uh, we don't have too, you know, overly abundance of time to get into all that's going on here, but the Satan here is being portrayed, interestingly, as about to kill the child of a pregnant woman. But this is not just any woman. Uh, this is an image of Israel. If you, if you think about the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, these, this language comes from Joseph's dream in, in uh, Genesis that described Jacob's family. And so here is this woman that represents the people of Israel about to give birth to a child who represents the Messiah. Now, this, uh, the, the dragon, of course, Satan, is, is against God's plan to redeem the world. And so he set about to, to oppose him. This dragon is, is uh, there are two beasts that go along with him in chapter 13. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, great power, seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet like a, uh, its feet like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And I would just stop there and say, these, these, what's with these animal imagery, the leopard and the bear and the lion? These images come straight from Daniel's prophecy uh, which represent different empires. Daniel is very clear. This is the empire of, of uh, Persia and Greece and uh, Bab- Babylon. And here, uh, jo- in John's vision, these are, empires are refashioned to the empire of John's day to Rome. Uh, we see the next beast in, in verse 11. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two ha- horns like a ra- uh, lamb and it spoke like a dragon, and it exercises the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast uh, whose mortal wound was, was uh, to be healed. So, again, without going too much into all the details, these beasts are a way of seeing from a different heavenly perspective the empire of Rome that the early Christians were living in. Because of its boasting about bringing peace and stability to the world through this Pax Romana, uh, its demand to participate in imperial worship that was placed on the people who lived within this empire, because of those things, Revelation views Rome as humanity's blasphemous and destructive attempt to exercise the sovereign authority and the claim to worship that belongs to God alone. Again, Balcom says, Revelation portrays the Roman Empire as a system of violent oppression founded on conquest, maintained by violence and oppression. And I think he's right that beyond question, much of the imagery and symbolism in this prophetic critique is a critique of Rome, but its meaning extends to our age as well. Every human institution and every generation's attempt to grab God's authority, the creator's authority, is revealed as beastly, regardless of how sophisticated, educated, prosperous that culture may seem. And I want to suggest that if we, uh, when we look at our time and place and situation through the lens of Revelation's prophetic critique of its day, we need to face the fact that this reveals 
well, some beastly aspects of our culture as well. And this is especially true when we think about uh, how we treat the unborn in our culture. In 2010, there was a, a, a British journalist who wrote an article for the Times, and, and the, the article was called, Yes, Abortion is Killing, But It's the Lesser Evil. And in it, she goes ahead and describing her own experience of becoming pregnant and giving birth to her daughter. And, and she writes this. She says, my daughter was formed at conception. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking a life. Yes, abortion is killing, but it's the lesser evil. And you might ask, well, what would, it, what would be the greater evil? And she goes on and says, You cannot separate women's rights from their right to control fertility. The single biggest factor in women's liberation was our newly found ability to impose our will on our biology. The nearly 200,000 aborted babies in the UK each year are the lesser evil, no matter how you define life. And so she ends her article with this chilling sentence. She said, you must be prepared to kill. Now, she is not alone in, in her opinion of this. Since our modern science has made it pretty much beyond argument that, that the fetus in the womb is a human life. That's mostly agreed upon by, by everyone today. The pro-choice side of the argument has shifted to what qualifies that human life to be considered a person. Some would define this by size or autonomy, or even whether or not it is wanted by its parents. Now, this is a terrible thought, if, if you think about it, that someone can be considered subhuman or a non-person based on how another person might feel about them. But listen again to Nancy Percy's words and rejoice. A Christian concept of personhood depends not on what I can do, but on who I am, that I am created in the image of God and that God has called me into existence and continues to know and love me. Human beings do not need to earn the right to be treated as creatures of great value. Our dignity is intrinsic, rooted in the fact that God made us, knows us, and loves us. It's good news. Now, because of this, Christians have, have historically taken a clear stance on the sanctity of life, among other issues. In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer uh, references a, a scholar named uh, Dr. Larry Hurtado. He's a, Christ, uh, sorry, he's a historian of early, Christian, uh, early Christianity. And he, ex he explains how this tiny Christian community in first century uh, Roman Empire was able to overcome that empire within just a couple centuries. His thesis was that it wasn't the church's relevance or relatability, but its differentness and distinctness that made it so compelling to many. Specifically, he identified these five distinctive features of the Christ, early Christian church as notable. And let's look at these together. He said, first of all, the church, the early church, 
was multiracial and multiethnic with a, with a high value on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Secondly, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines as well, and there was a high value for caring for the poor. Third, it was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion. Fourthly, it was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. And fifth, it was nonviolent, both on a personal and political level. And as John Mark Comer looks at this list, he observes, if you plot these five features onto the map of modern American politics, what do you see? The first two sound like progressive positions, right? Race and class. The second two, uh, uh, life and, and marriage, sound like conservative positions. And the last one doesn't jibe with either. Isn't that true? And so Comer concludes, no political party or intellectual ideology outside the church of Jesus that I'm aware of holds all five of these together. And this is really important for us to recognize because when we talk about sanctity of life and we talk about abortion, some people just say, oh, that's a conservative issue. This was not conservative uh, in the early years of the church. This was radical uh, based on what the Greco-Roman perspective was. And it became conservative once people realized this was good for the flourishing of children and women and families and all humanity. Now, how did the church... Uh, come to hold these things dear. And I would suggest that it, it comes from uh, the picture of Jesus and his church that we find elsewhere in the New Testament. And I wish I had much longer uh, to look at this, but I want to take us just to two quick chapters, and, and, and we're not even going to look at them, but you can make notes and go back and look at it later today. In chapters 5 and 7 of Revelation, Jesus gives us a picture in chapter 5 of Jesus in the same throne room and in, in chapter 7 of the church. And, and he, John both hears things and he sees things which give uh, different images of looking at Jesus and his church. And so let's look at it quickly. In chapter 5, we see that uh, a picture of Jesus, again, in the throne room. And what John hears is about a lion. Specifically, uh, it says this, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. He hears that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's a picture of, of power, of conquering. But what John sees in the next verse is, is a picture of a lamb. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, the picture of the lion and the lamb are both different ways of looking at the one Jesus. One is this powerful conquering king and the other, he's, he, we see that this, this power for conquering is displayed in an amazingly uh, way, uh, a way that we would never expect by laying his life down, of using his power uh, to sacrifice his life for others. Similarly, when John hears and sees about the church in chapter 7, what he hears about 
is, is a, is a army. He sees in, in verse uh, four of chapter seven, he says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then there's a little census taken. And in the Old Testament, censuses were, were taken uh, before sending an army into the, into the war. And so here is 12 times 12, uh, uh, you know, the children of Israel and the apostles, uh, thousands fold, 144,000 pictured as an army going out to do uh, the bidding of their king. But what he sees in verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Down in verse 14, I said to him, who are these? Or he was asked, who are these? And he said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In other words, in the same way that, that he heard and saw two different pictures of Jesus, he, he sees two different pictures of the church, one an army going out to conquer in the name of Christ. But what he, he sees is that the method of doing that is living and suffering in the world and laying our lives down and depending on God and being faithful witnesses to his power in his mercy and his compassion. In other words, Jesus defeated sin and death by laying down his power. And so we walk in his victory, not by claiming that we are the powerful ones, not by trying to win arguments or gaining political power or necessarily even passing laws. But ultimately, we approach this by trying to bear faithful witness to the authority of the creator God and by our willingness to lay our lives down, to live in humility and showing the same kind of love and compassion in serving and caring for those who are weak and powerless and dependent and needy. This is what God is like, and this is what his people are like, and this is why we care about the things that we do. And this is why we think and care about the unborn. I want to close by just showing you a very quick video that demonstrates what I think is a faithful approach to the unborn. <clears throat> my childhood was complicated. My parents divorced when I was really young. My dad has a history of alcohol and drug abuse, so it made me grow up really quickly. My aunt made all the difference in my life growing up. She poured into me in a, just an extravagant, grace-filled, unconditional way. Graduated from high school, I started attending Santa Barbara City College, and that summer my mom had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. It was really frustrating to see that the most healthy, godly, strong woman you've ever met would end up being the one to have to deal with that. I ended up stopping at City College and I was offered another job. As I was at that job, some things were going on that weren't normal. I didn't, it didn't make sense to have the flu 24-7 or to be weak or to be tired, and I decided to take a pregnancy test. I was pregnant. Okay, what do I do now? I don't even know how far along I am. I have no idea what this looks like. How do I prepare? What are the next steps? There was a certain level of shame because purity and no sex outside of marriage was a big, important thing. 
but I found myself pregnant. And it's not like, oh, my parents said do not lie, and I told a little lie. You're having a baby, and everybody's gonna know. I ended up talking to my aunt, and she brought me to Network Medical. I frankly had no idea that it was a Christian organization of any sort. I had heard of it, I hadn't paid enough attention, and I was told that I was just going to get a free ultrasound, and that was that. When I saw the heartbeat and I could hear it, it was, it was just powerful. It was extremely powerful. I, and it became so real. Yes, I was still afraid, and that didn't mean everything was okay, but I was witnessing real life inside of me. They prayed with me, and in my family, that is a big deal. We believe in prayer. I felt the entire time they were neutral, and they were solely there to encourage me and guide me and assist me in making the right choice. When I walked into church with my daughter, one of the elders of the church and his family invited me to sit with them. And his wife actually bought me, went out and bought clothes for my daughter. And they were just an incredible support. It breaks my heart that there's a lack of support in some instances, in some churches, when it's really a beautiful thing. We should be focusing on the miracle of that child. We should be encouraging that mom wrapping her up saying, what can we get for you? What can we do for you? Thank you for choosing life. Thank you for making the hard choice in, in raising a child. When my mom died, I was discouraged. I was hurt. I was angry. I didn't know what to do. And my daughter came up to me, was patting my head. Mama, mama. She's like, don't cry. She says, I love you, mama. I love you, mama. It's okay, Mama. And that instantly just melted. It melted me. And at that point, I was crying even more because I felt this abundance of love from a two-year-old. And I felt healing in that. I felt support and comfort in, so far, the hardest thing I've had to endure. When I had my daughter, it softened my heart. I was opened up to this whole realm of love that I had never known existed. Even if it's not. And uh, I just want to say, if you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy, this church will stand with you. Our job is not to shame you. Our job is to care for you and help you make it through this difficult decision. And through our supportive network medical, we want to stand with others in our community as well who find themselves in the same position. If you're a man or woman who's participated in abortion, come with the rest of us who have sinned in many ways to the cross, to the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. All of us have in in multiple ways placed ourselves at the center, put ourselves on the throne, have have viewed ourselves and others through the lens of, of what we want, imposing our will. And we come again to this table at at the apex of our worship today and remember that that Christ is the true king. And he demonstrated that uh, not by imposing his will on us, but by laying down his life for us. This bread and cup represent the body and blood of Christ, which was laid down, broken and shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I want to invite you, if you know him, come to that table and rejoice.
that God made you and he loved you. He gave his life to redeem you. And he wants to lead you in ways that are good and pleasant. So take a breath. Be reminded that every breath in our lungs comes from God, that you're valued by him. And rejoice that this is the extent to which he showed his love for us. Will you just pause and uh, worship him, confess your sins, and then let's come to the table and be grateful for our creator and savior. Amen.